The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'll be talking with Will Davis about the Windrush scandal and the politics of the Home Office. You can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Today's interview is with Will Davis. Will is reader in political economy at Goldsmiths College, part of the University of London. He's the author of The Happiness Industry and also The Limits of Neoliberalism. And most recently, he's the editor of Economic Science Fictions. Will has an article in the latest edition of the London Review of Books on today's topic, which I strongly recommend checking out. It's called Weaponising Paperwork. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a recording glitch and some of Will's answer to my first question was lost. I'd begun by asking Will to briefly outline the Conservative government's hostile environment migration policy and to describe its effects. Unfortunately, his answer to the first part of that question has been lost, so the recording now begins with Will describing some of the consequences of the policies contained in the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts. So what this was really doing was using... Uh, all of these non-government services and some public services to create, uh, to make it very, very hard for people living in the UK to settle down and live normal lives. Um, It wasn't necessarily a way of trying to kind of count them and deport them um, so much as just trying to create an environment in Britain which didn't seem to be welcoming and uh, easy to live in if one's paperwork wasn't absolutely 100%. And of course, I think the thing that's most important to um, just bear in mind with all of this, and this is why I, I, I use the term illegal immigrant in, 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 in quote marks, as it were, is that what this is trying to check up on isn't so much people who have been necessarily smuggled into the country or criminals who've found the broken into the country or come in the back of a lorry, but people who come into the country quite legally with certain rights and so on, but might be uh, uh, slightly overstepping the, the limits of their, of their visa in some way, or might be trying to settle down in some other way, you know, through through building a home for themselves, uh, work, you know, getting the health care that they need, um, and, you know, perhaps as the starting point towards having a family and, and making Britain their home. I mean, I think that it was, I mean, Amber Rudd, before she resigned, uh, described the policy's purpose as preventing illegal immigrants in, in her terms from flourishing, which is so it's this, it's actually, in some ways, it's, 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 it's a policy that is less designed for for punishing the kind of archetypal criminal and, and better designed for punishing the person who is trying to kind of, you know, perhaps slightly stay out of the Home Office's way because they know their paperwork isn't in, in, in complete order, and they, but they want to nevertheless live a, a fairly normal life. Uh, now, and of course, there are some people who didn't even know they needed to stay out of the Home Office's way, such as the Windrush generation, and that's what brought this story to public attention. 
And this targeting of, of, as you say, you know, not people who've been, you know, smuggled into the country and so on. Is this a reflection of just a sort of um, a focus upon targets that they're going after the, the lower hanging fruit? And it turned out that actually that ended up sweeping up people from the from the Windrush generation as well. I mean, I think so. There's been this 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 target that David Cameron introduced. Um, no one. It's one of it's one of the worst pieces of policy of of, of, of recent years. With this um, um, net migration target, where I mean, there's even a rumor that it came about because um, uh, Damien Green just sort of accidentally in a Newsnight interview around about 2010 said, oh, we want it to be in the tens of thousands, you know, so put on the spot saying, well, how much immigration do you think this country should have? And and he said tens of thousands, and it sort of somehow kind of kind of fossilized into a policy. Um, and it was a kind of arbitrarily selected number. Um, but nevertheless, there was this net migration cap, uh, net migration target of under 100,000, um, which Cameron um, had in the manifesto in, in 2010, um, and um, the reason that's relevant is that net migration can come down either through less people arriving in the country, but that's pretty hard to establish, actually. I mean, something like 40 million people cross the border into Britain every year. Um, and for all sorts of kind of reasons that the economy and, and, and various other universities and, and things depend on. Um, but what you can try and do is to get as many of those people to cross the border back out again or, or equivalent number. And so I think a lot of what the hostile environment, to understand it, it's it's trying to, in, it, you, I mean, one way of understanding it, in some ways a more kind of, I think, uh, probably a more truthful way of understanding it, is less about sort of catching illegal immigrants, as the, as the phrase goes, and more about trying to kind of increase emigration in a way, to try and get people who have often come into the country for perfectly good reason or have lived here for a long, long time to leave the country. So I think, I mean, you know, and, and the fact that this, um, it also, the other thing which I didn't mention about the 2014 Act is that it, is that it, greatly reduced the legal opportunities to appeal and resist um, home office decisions. Um, and uh, so they had, for a while, they had this deport first, appeal later policy, but that was later ruled unlawful by the Supreme Court. But there was, I mean, a, a, a topic's come up again today in the Financial Times, although this was, this was reported um, some years ago now, but that several thousand um, uh, people from Bangladesh and India um, had were deported um, uh, around about I think it was twenty around about twenty fourteen I think um, because they were alleged to have cheated at some foreign language test that they were meant to have taken in order to um, uh, to have their visas um, but there was no proof that they'd done this they had they didn't admit it they were just basically rounded up and taken and and, and flown out of the country um, and there was no legal due process whatsoever and that is in some ways the sort of the, the style of, of 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 kind of executive power that the Home Office seeks because their sense is that as soon as it becomes a matter of uh, tribunals and lawyers and so on, they just get bogged down into a kind of quagmire of uh, and a costly and slow quagmire in which um, suddenly, you know, the the the, 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 the government is it, it's beholden on the government to prove um, that they have the right to do what they're doing. So they tried effectively with those two pieces of legislation to create a kind of, um, well, in a way, I mean, a state of exception is a, is a, I mean, that's often a, 
uh, that often the term state of exception, which comes from the likes of Schmidt and, and Agamben and others, is, is, is often sound, you know, raises alarm bells of fascism or, or something like that. But I think that state of exception is a, is a, is a political, juridical scenario in which uh, the sovereign can simply take decisions uh, and doesn't have to, um, in some sense, they kind of suspend uh, juridical procedure in favour of um, um, contingent decision making, and I think that is a fairly good uh, description of, of what that that legislation sought to do. In the last few days, we've seen Amber Rudd resign as Home Secretary, and she's been replaced by former investment banker and Ayn Rand fan Sajid Javid. He's declared that the Home Office will be dropping the hostile environment policy in favour of what he terms a compliant environment, uh, whatever that means. Given that the very high Tory vote share in the last election depended on cannibalising most of the UKIP vote and given that the government seem unable to make any new attractive economic offer, how likely do you think it is that we'll see any meaningful change in policy? I, I think it's very unlikely. I mean, I think that the... Um, uh, I, I, can't see, I can't see anybody saying that... Um, I mean, I, I, the, the problem is that this, this country needs the le- levels of, uh, of of immigration that it currently has. It's very difficult to see how this country can function without the levels of immigration that it, that it currently has. And I mean, there's already been some fairly frightening stories of how, of, of, of the, uh, you know, the, the undersupply of nurses uh, to the NHS. Um, and there's also, you know, universities are not going to stand back and, and, and just watch this huge foreign market, which is basically kind of, kind of propping up a lot of um, the higher education sector in the face of government cuts and that sort of thing. They're not going to just allow that to just sort of evaporate. Um, and employers are not going to suddenly kind of, you know, they're not going to let up on the government. So I think the the, the levels of immigration we face at the moment are, are not going to change substantially. I mean, there, there, there has been uh, a lot more Europeans suddenly leave the country um, since the Brexit referendum, which, uh, you know, gave a, a sudden boost to the government's uh, ridiculous net migration um, kind of scorecard. Um, but I, I mean, I think that um, the government is going to carry, I mean, unless someone's going to be have, have the guts to stand up and, and explain all of that, then I think they're going to carry on with this kind of sort of hounding of, of people who they think they can get to leave the country. Um, and um, I think that, you know, in some ways, the the kind of the kind of woke Tory position on all of this is not to kind of abandon the policy, but to try and reform the Home Office. Um, and that's been, you know, I mean, the Home Office has been something that lots of people have thought needs to either be broken up or to be radically reformed or something for um, probably a good sort of fifteen years or twenty years or something. So, I mean, there is a sense that something's gone wrong in the Home Office where people and not being treated with any kind of humanity. But on the other hand, I mean, that is really a, a, a function of, of, of the policy as much as it is of, of, of the kind of internal management structures. I mean, I think there is a, there is a view that in some ways of something like this, you know, if you, you have, you're going to have to try and devolve some kind of um, sort of duty of care or, or some kind of sense of ethics to the front line of the people administering the policy, because you, what you can't have uh, our politicians standing up and saying, oh, yes, we're very kind of concerned about human rights and so on. But, you know, we've got this hostile environment policy and then, and then expect kind of junior civil servants and people working in the um, immigration enforcement agency and so on to, to somehow kind of square that circle. I mean, I think that, that you know, that, 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 that there is a sort of serious problem inside the, the Home Office. 
as you say, I mean, there's big, powerful sectors of British society which aren't very happy with the with the current policy. I mean, it's clearly not policy beloved of the city, and we've seen pushback from people like George Osborne at the Evening Standard and so on. Do you think it's strange that we, we've ended up in this situation where it almost seems as if policy is being made in the in the offices of the Daily Mail? Well, I think the um, I mean what what we're what we've seen is and which Brexit was the sort of explosion of is a is a conflict between how government how modern government works with with a certain kind of liberal idea of what governing is about and then certain kinds of neoliberal reforms to try and make governing more market oriented and so on and so on and that's basically what most people inside Whitehall and it, most of the kind of you know sort of um, mainstream professional politicians subscribe to in the kind of idea of evidence-based policy and so on. Um, meanwhile, there has been, I suppose, a sort of rumbling, um, popular set of narratives in in the in the press and um, in grassroots conservatives and in the insurgent populist parties such as UKIP, which sees politics as a completely different kind of thing altogether, which is sort of in some ways has nothing in common with that with the first one, in the sense that it's about symbols, it's about um, traditions which are sort of not really traditions of a sort that can't really be kind of turned into policies almost, but are sort of have these sort of you know uh, fairly kind of knee-jerk ideals. I mean, there's a bit of this in Blue Labour as well, I think, with this idea that you can sort of invoke the flag and the family, and that can sort of solve things. And I think that. I think that this has, you know, this there has been a kind of, I mean, Thatcher, Stuart Hall wrote about this with Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she was quite clever at managing to sort of play both cards at once by making out that sort of kind of fairly brutal neoliberal reforms were actually being done in the name of sort of flag and country and monarchy and traditional that kind of stuff. And that sort of contradiction was 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 sort of there all along. Stuart Hall wrote about it a lot. People like Jeremy Gilbert have written about it since. Um, but uh, I think, you know, in a sense, it's finally that the, the sort of collision between those two things has just, you know, finally a kind of train wreck arrived with um, with UKIP coming along and, and leading to Brexit. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a very strange situation. And the, the fact is that what we've now got, and, I, and things like the BBC are kind of being swept up with this a little bit, is, is the government is now having to operate with a kind of a front stage and a backstage that have less and less to do with each other, where the front stage is people have to sort of say that they think Brexit is a good idea when they when they basically don't. Um, they have to kind of um, nod towards certain kind of ideals of nationhood and, and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, kind of perform. I mean, obviously, there's always been a kind of performative and, and symbolic aspect of politics. But I think that the, the policy has become a kind of a bit of an embarrassment to, to um, uh, politicians now. And I think this is a this isn't a sustainable situation either. But yeah, I mean, clearly, you can't, you can't, it's difficult to be a kind of a sort of naked neoliberal uh, right now in the way that, that George Osborne was a kind of a proud, fairly kind of nihilistic neoliberal. I mean, that that position is not a, a, a sort of a, a politically viable one at this at this moment. As you've already pointed out, the, the treatment of the Windrush generation doesn't particularly differ from the treatment of people who've come to Britain more recently. It's rather that the Windrush generation are, are broadly perceived as British in a way that more recent migrants aren't. I wonder if you think that this scandal sort of opens up a space for for talking about the mistreatment of migrants more generally, or, or whether it's more likely that the scandal will just reinforce notions of, of good migrants and bad migrants? I think it, I think there's the opportunity. I mean, I think one thing that I think it's a bit of a truism um, 
about when it comes to immigration is that the is that actually people are much more sort of you know that your average voter is much more empathetic and compassionate in the particular than they are in the general and i think this is this is something that i think a lot of researchers has confirmed is that um you know that people you know they 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 they're adamantly against some perceived idea of hordes and thousands of people coming from overseas and from Eastern Europe and so on, but um, they're quite happy to accept that they, you know, that 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 there are these sort of happy stories of people settling down and and, and being good neighbours and good citizens and so on and so on. And I don't think that people, you know, um, in my view, I, don't, I, th- I think the idea that, that that people might read in the paper about. Romanian, in some sort of the sun would say Romanians have, uh, sort of commit crime or something like that, but then be quite happy to chat to a Romanian person who's who they meet through, um, you know, their neighbourhood or something like that. So there's a sort of a, I think there is a kind of cognitive sort of, you know, dissonance goes on there in relation to, to immigration. I think that, um, and I think that's the, the thing about the, the, the Windrush generation is it's a, such a it's such a human story. So clearly that that has broken through. It's also a human story that's that's been going for a long, long time. I mean, um, I mean, peop- I mean, this is this is this is this is part of the kind of the kind of furniture of, of British culture. I mean, it's not it's it's something which um, people um, are, are sort of familiar with uh, these stories and with the sorts of individuals that, that have been caught up in this. So I think the question is, if you were trying to do a kind of PR job for immigration, then yes, you want to try and um, demonstrate that that, that, that that this is a policy that is stopping people from doing things like creating a home, kind of having kids, um, getting health care, and so on. Um, if, if I had to guess, I'd be quite pessimistic that this is going to really take off, except that I think, I mean, the the thing is that what the government will always do is keep hammering this distinction between the legal and the illegal, uh, and they would say yes, that the Windrush were, were were totally legal and it was a mistake. Uh, but the problem is that actually that distinction is not clear cut, um, and any migration lawyer will tell you that actually it's very very unclear often where someone stands, uh, and it can cost a lot of money to work it out. Um, that um, the and actually that you know this the. the Ultimately, it comes down to paper trails and and um, the ability to to um, play an administrative game. So it's not. I mean, it's it's a lovely idea that we could just sort of draw a very straightforward line between. Well, it's, it's a lovely idea. It's a lovely idea to to the political to the voices that 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 um, use it. That, um, that that you could sort of draw a line between the legal and the illegal. Um, but it, I mean, it's completely implausible. Now, I mean, again. Um, the, the the rhetorical trick that is played is to say, well, you you know, illegal immigrants are are these sort of you know traffickers and gangs and all this sort of stuff, and it's complete misrepresentation of what's going on in all of this. So, um, but I do think that strange way, I think Brexit. I'm not saying I mean it's not making this country any any saner in lots of ways, but it could be that by sort of throwing over all the cards up into the air, uh, and as they gradually sort of fall down again, it could be that people people's views change i mean after all i think you know the the the, the cohort effect the demographics of, of of the attitudes in all of this are, are are sort of more more liberal more understanding younger people are more open to the world um they are obviously more anti-brexit um they are more multicultural um they're much more 
familiar with um, cultural mixing in 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 the present as opposed to in the past, like with the Windrush generation. So I think you know there are there are reasons to be hopeful, um, but. I imagine the politics of this is that the, the parties are going to end up sort of trying to kind of put the old um, sort of regime back together again as quickly as possible. The idea of a sort of uh, distinctly Mayist political agenda seems to be off the table after the snap election. But um, the Home Office is one government department where May's agenda seems to have been consistently implemented during her six years as Home Secretary and obviously since she became Prime Minister. What does the behaviour of the Home Office tell us about May's politics? Well... As you probably know, I wrote a piece in the London Review of Books about this in uh, the autumn of 2016, just after her first, at the time, quite triumphant party conference speech. It's kind of strange to think now that she had a, a triumphant party conference speech, <laughs> given the one she had in 2017, um, <laughs> where, where the lettering was falling off, behind, on the, off the wall behind her and she couldn't stop coughing and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I know which one I enjoyed more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the, yeah, so after the, 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 the triumphant one, uh, and I wrote um, a piece in the London Review of Books that um, I think was still valid in lots of ways although it, it, it probably exaggerated how how sort of how, how strong her this new hegemonic um sort of assemblage of of, of, of ideas was going to be i think it clearly did was clearly wrong about that but um but i mean roughly the argument i made in that is that um i think that the home office has always had a, a, a strange function within whitehall because a lot of the time it goes around trying to thwart other bits of Whitehall. It tries to thwart the Treasury by uh, introducing um, sort of forms of legislation that the um, that employers don't like, um, such as the cap on net migration, things like the skilled migrants cap, um, uh, which, you know, employers hated. Uh, business innovation skills hate the approach to students. Then you've got all of the kind of, um, you know, forms of... Uh, just the forms of surveillance that, that you know, the, the more liberal-minded politicians like Vince Cable and probably George Osborne himself, frankly, uh, don't like this kind of kind of this this constantly creeping surveillance. That, after all, is is what drove David Davis to the to the back benches uh, at one point. Was this um, was you know making a kind of principal stance against um, all of the kind of um, snooping and 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 sort of endless effort to collect more data on us and so on um and also there's a certain sort of paranoid all of the issues that the home office deals with are, are sort of uh, create a kind of paranoid sensibility of you know it's terrorists it's pedophiles it's um you know trying to deport um various um preachers or um uh, it's trying to stop um, you know it's things like the prevent program in in, in universities it's um uh, it's it's issues of, of of citizenship and keeping people out of the country, keeping people safe. It's the police, which is always a sort of kind of very difficult kind of brief to ever keep everybody happy. Um, and it's generally a sort of sense that the world is 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 a sort of nasty, disruptive place, um, and that uh, lawyers are, are tend to be on the wrong side of arguments because they're always defending people. They never, you know, it's always lawyers who want to defend people who've done bad things. That's the sort of kind of Home Office Daily Mail mentality. Um, and so ultimately, I think there's a kind of, I suppose you could say, a sort of a, a kind of conservative populist streak that runs through it, which is similar to to, to, to that of the Daily Mail, uh, an idea that, um, you know, that 
that actually that when 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 the state stops protecting people it's actually the sort of the elderly who suffer or the the, the you know the powerless that the powerless white indigenous people who suffer and that actually you know that this is where this is how the state tries to look after its own people properly and that that is exactly what the state should be doing but um that the outside world simply doesn't understand because they're they're, they're too enamored with 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 sort of human rights law and, and and the bbc and that sort of thing and this was very much a kind of mentality i think that someone like nick timothy who was may's um main advisor um while she was at the home office and the whole way up until uh, the, the the 2017 general election, which I mean, I, I you know, one would assume that he played some role in 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 convincing her to call that election. One way or the other, he 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 resigned along with Fiona Hill after the election. I think many people felt that they were way too influential over her, and that that she'd become you know that they'd become sort of parents to her almost, and that's partly why she's so been so lost ever since. But so there was a sort of a, a mixture, I suppose, of policy concerns, a kind of cultural outlook on the world. Um, that she she must have had it before she went into the Home Office, um, but an idea of conservatism, which isn't so principally about free markets, um, uh, but it not, not, nor is it the sort of compassionate conservatism that that, da- that the, the, the kind of famous Tory modernizers of, of David Cameron and Matthew Dancona and George Osborne tried to spin this line that oh Tories could become well, things like gay marriage and that sort of thing became the sort of um, the symbols of, of that kind of kind of liberal compassionate conservatism clearly the home office is not a space of, of liberalism in in any sense uh, but so i think there's a sort of um um i mean what in in my london review of books piece i said a kind of hobbesian mentality which is that that the world is fundamentally a, a dangerous place and uh it's the state's job is to is to protect people from from bad good people from bad people that attitude of, as you say, this sort of protective uh, attitude, it, it does seem that to an extent it bleeds into economic policy, which obviously within the Home Office isn't within their remit. But the early days of the May Premiership, when there was the talk of uh, energy caps and even talk of putting workers on boards and, and this sort of business, that it does seem to include this kind of what seemed to some extent to be progressive policies in the economic sphere, but they're only for our people, so to speak. You know, it's for the, for, yeah. for the white working class. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, it's it's not quite clear uh, how this has has really developed. I mean, I think that if maybe if if the general election had gone more as she as she planned, um, there may have been um, there may have been more kind of energy behind that kind of Nick Timothy agenda. I mean, she famously made a, a sort of a, she made this speech um, when she became leader in, in summer 2016 about how she was going to listen to the small people. And there was all this stuff about putting workers on boards, um, using corporate governance reform to to tackle inequality, to go after the sort of, you know, the kind of rent-seeking, tax-dodging, super-rich. That, I think, was meant to be part of the the Mayite agenda. Uh, And I think that Nick Timothy would say that that was, you know, this is always what he was about. And I think her her greatest sort of supporters, I'm not sure who those people really are anymore, but would say, you know, these these are core values of hers she just doesn't really sort of express them very well but I think the thing is that she's now so embattled and she's so kind of um she's lost so much credibility within her own party and she's so preoccupied with just trying to hold the whole thing together and try and get through Brexit and all that kind of stuff that um it's um 
you know, I think that all of that stuff has completely fallen by the wayside. So I don't really think that, I mean, I'm, I, I don't really think that, that, that there is much of a sort of Mayite political economy anymore. And I think that, frankly, I mean, you know, Philip Hammond is the closest to a kind of a neoliberal, um, sort of classic neoliberal that, that there is in the cabinet, really. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are the sort of more kind of libertarian nut jobs like Neil Fox and that kind of stuff. But I think that Philip Hammond is in some ways kind of continuity Cameronism in a way. And so I, as, far as, as far as I see it, I don't think there's been yet any sign of what I thought was going to become a sort of a, a kind of a, I mean, it was around about the time when, you know, just around about the time when, when, when Donald Trump won the election and, and Steve Bannon gave an interview saying, describing himself as an economic nationalist, which was a sort of phrase that stuck in my head. Um, this idea of, I'm not, you know, he said, I'm not a white nationalist, I'm an economic nationalist. And I mean, I think, you know, there was this, this moment for a while where I did wonder, is, are we about to see a sort of, you know, ultimately very dangerous um, form of, of sort of protectionism and mercantilism reappear? Um, but I don't think that there's been so much sign of that recently i mean the british economy is still in a dreadful state but i don't think it's i don't think currently i see much sign that the way of fixing that is to sort of suddenly kind of recreate some sort of yeah kind of mercantilist or or, or i mean she was also meant to be in favor of a kind of industrial strategy of a kind of almost like a mariana mazzucato style industrial strategy that was meant to be part of the mayite platform but i think again it just seems to have disappeared after the 2017 election Going back to migration for a moment, you mentioned how the Cameron government brought in the, uh, you know, these sort of arbitrary migration targets. Do you see the hostile environment mainly rooted in the in the coalition era? Do you think it goes back to the Labour government in some ways? I mean, I'm thinking about the, um, you know, there was a degree of, of, of social conservatism within the last Labour government and the, and the Blair governments as well. Yeah, I mean... Um... It's not that the Home Office itself suddenly became it went from being a kind of benign force to a to a malign one in overnight. So that clearly that's not the case. Um, nor is it the case that New Labour was was sort of neutral on on um, on, on immigration. There were, I mean, the, the migration cap I mentioned, the, sorry, tar- you know, the, the target of of getting net migration under a hundred thousand. That that's a, that was a Tory move that was to try and ward off UKIP. But no, I mean, I think. Um, New Labour, the, the 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 politics was a little bit different. I mean, there was a lot of um, it was a lot of it was to do with things, ideas of bogus asylum seekers was a was a sort of big um, kind of bugbear under New Labour, and there was a series of of um, uh, of, of Labour Home Secretaries, John Reid. Um, I mean, after all, you know, David Blunkett um, at, at, at the Home Office was responsible for things like what was called the respect agenda, including things like ASBOs and so on. And so there was actually quite an assertive um, home office, particularly, I mean, Blunkett, I think, had quite a strong um, sort of civic ideal about, and it was Blunkett that introduced things like citizenship ceremonies and this sort of stuff, because it's trying to turn, turn the question of being British into something that wasn't simply about paperwork, which, um, I mean, has a certain, has something to be said for it in comparison to, to, to what we've seen since. Um, but I think there was, um, uh, you know, there was there was John Reed, there was Charles Clark. So they tended to always be these kind of, kind of bruiser types. Um, and uh, yeah, they, I mean, New Labour's record on things like civil liberties and so on is, 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 is not a very um, happy one. So um, I'm not saying that everything started in, in 2010. In your recent article for the LIB, you talk about the way the hostile environment policy has served to foster 
great deal of sort of anxiety and a feeling of sort of culpability amongst people from minority backgrounds. That obviously also seems to be the the just the primary sort of affects associated with neoliberalism more generally. Um, I wonder if you think the Windrush scandal tells us something about neoliberal governmentality in a, in a broader sense. Yes, I, I do actually, and actually one reason why I, I, I kind of I suppose one of the the other things that I've written before that that fed into to that. I mean, just just to put it in the context of my own work. I mean, I I'd done a couple of things that that informed all of this. One was. Um, a, a book that uh, I contributed to called "Go Home?" question mark, which was a an analysis of the of the go home vans that the Home Office um, uh, introduced in the summer of 2013 for a couple of weeks, and that led me to try and look into what was going on inside the Home Office, which was which is partly sort of what I'm basing what I'm saying on, and and and, and some of these articles on. The other was I, wrote, I had an article published in the New Left Review in which came out in autumn 2016, which had the title was The New Neoliberalism, which basically argued that we've seen kind of three broad phases of, of neoliberal um, uh, sort of, I suppose, um, different styles of governing, I suppose, or different rationalities of, of, of neoliberal government. The first is what I call combative neoliberalism, which was roughly from sort of 1977 through to 1989, which where the principal fun- focus is the destruction of socialism and trade union and disempowering of trade unions. Um, the second is what I call a normative neoliberalism, which is from 1989 through to 2007, eight, where effectively it's about trying to make the market the measure of all value, but that also necessarily has certain sort of socially progressive dimensions to it because it means that, you know, people have to be given the skills, they need to be treated fairly, you need to have things like consumer protection and good regulation and so on, if that is to work as a kind of a as a regime of justice. And then the third is 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 what I call punitive neoliberalism, which is what I what I argue kind of came into force um, in the wake of the financial crisis with austerity and things like benefit sanctions. And I think in a way, although it's sort of not direct Directly related to austerity or to, to to fiscal conservatism, I think something like the the hostile environment is in keeping with a with a mentality which says that we can't just sort of use simple incentives to try and get people to change their behaviour or regulate them or tell them that, that the rules have changed. We need to sort of use this kind of constant hounding effect, uh, which is, which is how um, the you know the benefit sanctions have worked. Um, this, you know, the reform of the welfare state involves various ways of kind of never leaving people alone. Um, and equally, this sort of, I mean, it's almost like, it's a bit like what um, someone like Deleuze talks about in, in societies of, as societies of control, this kind of a, a form of governing which kind of never lets up, um, which sends people text messages saying it's time to get up now. And, you know, this sort of, this, this style of governing, which I don't think neoliberalism has to work like that. And that's partly what I'm saying about it in these different phases. But I do think that that's, a, that's become the distinctive and maybe it's a particularly British um, uh, style. I don't think it's something that you know would necessarily export particularly well. Unlike the the, the, the you know the sort of normative neoliberalism, I think sort of Britain kind of ruled was was sort of led the world in in things like kind of public private partnerships and kind of workfare arrangements and like all the sort of the kind of you know the the the, the sort of what well, the the sort of Blairite kind of um, achievements um, which were all sort of seen to be win wins. Uh, whereas this is not win win stuff anymore. It's sort of it's a sort of a bullying mentality which which blames people for their own failure and sort of thinks that if they can you know that the, 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 through force of kind of guilt shame and 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 ultimately suffering that they will inevitably have to sort themselves out 
There's an article by Aditya Chakraborty in today's Guardian where he talks about Amber Rudd's very rapid ascent to a ministerial position. And he talks about it in terms of this notion of a sort of what he calls a stepping stone culture of ministers and elite figures who are always sort of on the make, effectively, always with an eye to the next position and, and so on. And drawing upon Aaron Davis's work, in which Davis suggests that this is potentially quite dangerous for, for elites to be represented by these people who don't really, you know, care about anything more than the next payday. Um, I, I wonder what you think about that argument. Yeah, it's not an argument that I met, would make particularly myself. I mean, I, I can see the, I can see the, I can see what, what, how that argument works. I don't think it's, um, I think to sort of personalize it in that way misses the fact that, I mean, you know, we, at the moment we have the style of, of, of government that we, that we have, where we have these elected politicians becoming ministers over these vast lumbering departments, and then they try to use that to impose a, a policy program on them. But at the same time that, you know, that they are accountable for everything that goes wrong there. And we have a press that um, is, I don't think in Rudd's case at all, but it can be quite un, uh, unforgiving. Um, so I don't quite see how if you had sort of more, I mean, let, let's imagine that the that, that, that Diane Abbott came in. Um, now, I, I, I mean, you know, would, would, would we level all the same accusations at her just because she um, you know, she's she she doesn't have the experience of of running a a government department. Um, I mean, I, I don't quite know. I don't quite know what what we're comparing it to. I mean, there's a sort of, I think, I mean, there's a th these are arguments that sort of someone like Carol Williams, who I think has been quite influential over 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 um, lots of people actually. But I think in some ways a lot of his arguments sort of chime with with those that you're mentioning in you know, Aditya Chakraborty and, and Aaron Davis and so on. But I mean, you know, there, there is a kind of, in some ways, a, a longing, which I completely understand for a certain sort of, a, a more kind of, I suppose, more sort of Mandarin culture of uh, of slower, more authoritative, more kind of public, a stronger sense of public duty in our, in our elites and this sort of thing. Um, and it's something that someone who, another person who I know, sort of people like Aaron draw on and 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 Carol um, was quite keen on. Someone like Philip Orgar, who wrote a book called the, the, the Strange Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism about about the City of London, um, and about how you know in the, until the nineteen eighties everyone kind of treated each other with respect and played the game properly and so on, and then it all got kind of blown up by deregulation and American banks. Um, now, yes, and I, I, I mean I don't disagree with the analysis, but you can't sort of turn this into a sort of into a into a wholly kind of moral failing of the individuals concerned and say that they're all kind of opportunists. I don't act personally think Rudd was that much of an opportunist. I mean I think she's about as, as good or as bad as 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 anybody else. I mean, you know, I think that um but ultimately you have to sort of look at these things in a slightly more, I think in a in a rather more kind of sort of institutional and, and political and in some ways cultural way. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. Do check out the two articles that Will wrote for the LRB. The titles are Weaponizing Paperwork from the latest issue and Home Office Rules from November 2016. If you like the podcast, do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Uh, by doing so, you'll be contributing to what is currently my primary aim in life, which is to get Politics Theory Other to place above Nick Clegg's anger management in the rankings. Um, th that is, in fact, the real name of his podcast, which, uh, you know, could perhaps be subtitled Privately Educated Man with Knighthood and Background in Enabling Austerity tries to work out why everyone is not feeling quite as relaxed as he is. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week.